Okay, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Um, lovely to see so many of you back. I, have, I always fear that I'll come back after the break and there'll be nobody there at all. Um, so before the break, we were talking about um, what death means in a biological sense. Uh, and now we're turning to really ask the question, um, is, is death, as, as the, the, the literary world has had it, a, a necessary end? Can we actually think about ways of, uh, of avoiding or escaping death? Um, and, and in a philosophical sense, what is death anyway? Um, and we'll be asking questions like, can we rejuvenate ourselves with spare parts as if we're a, um, a, a second-hand car? Um, or can technology provide a longer-term substitute for living bodies and brains? Um, and and should, we, should we be thinking about postponing the end anyway? Is it, is it the right thing to do? And are we making a mistake, perhaps, in pouring resources into technologies that are focused on the survival of the individual? So I'm going to begin. Um, we have a, a new panel for you um, to, this afternoon, the second part of the afternoon. Uh, once again, I'll give you their names quickly now, but then I'll introduce them more fully to you uh, as I come to interview each of them in turn. Uh, so here on the panel, um, in order that they're sitting, but it won't be the order that they're speaking. I lost control of them in the tea break. <laughs> We have Donna Dickinson, Anders Sandberg, Paul Fairchild, and Adam Rutherford. I'm, I'm going to start with Anders, um, who has quite a radical take. And he, he did ask me just now whether I thought that was the right place to start with the most radical take. And I thought, why not? I think, that's, I think it's a good way of, way of launching in. So Anders has a background in computer science, neuroscience, and medical engineering. He's James Martin Fellow in the Oxford Martin Programme on the Impact of Future Technologies. And he's interested in social and ethical issues surrounding human enhancement, including the, including the idea of using computer computers to enhance or even replicate human consciousness. And the reason I wanted to start with you was because I wanted to ask, first of all, from a philosophical point of view, would you argue that death is a bad thing? Uh, and if so, why? Or if not? Mm. Well, first of all, it's important to realize that it's very hard to escape death because we're finite be Okay, I should be... A little be bit closer. Yeah. A little bit. Thank you. It's easier to escape microphones than death. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so we're finite beings in a fairly random universe, which means that sooner or later, no matter how well our bodies uh, function, or even if we have uh, backup copies, we're going to run out of luck. And uh, that means that in the long run, uh, I think uh, John Maynard Keynes was right, in the long run we're all dead. The question is, of course, is it a good idea to make sure that it's the really long run or just three score and ten? And I would argue that in, for most people and most beings, life is worth living. So we should be trying to live more life. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that all forms of life is very good. And uh, some, I think it's very important that we have a right to stop living if it's not worthwhile anymore. But on the, in the big picture, I think that, yeah, if we can avoid death and taxes, so much better. So if, just to go to the opposite extreme, if we were able to somehow convert ourselves into immortal super beings, what kind of problems would that pose? Or opportunities? Well, I think the opportunities of immortal super beings are kind of pretty impossible to envision. They're, they're by, almost by definition super. Typically, when people propose, oh, yes, we could become immortal, the first objection is, yeah, but what if I want to die? What if I get bored? And uh, I think the pretty obvious answer is if you are an immortal superbeing, you can probably stop being immortal superbeing also very easily. But of course, immortal superbeings, unless they're in a religious sense, need resources. 
That's the second thing everybody worries about. What about overpopulation? What about us taking all the material resources? And of course, it depends quite a lot on what kind of super beings we are. Uh, there is this saying that if everybody had the same quality of life as we have in the West, we would need, I think, five or seven Earths, which is true. Except that if we went back to become hunter-gatherers, we would need about 300 to feed 7 billion hunter-gatherers. Because hunter-gatherers are so inefficient in getting their food. They need to actually have a forest where you can go out hunting. We have fairly effective agriculture. We might complain quite a lot about the nature of that agriculture, wish we had more ecological ones. But we are so effective that we can even afford to spend some of our money on getting ecological food. So I would assume if we could become real super beings, we would probably be amazingly effective. In fact, uh, it might turn out that the universe looks like it would have more resources. Once upon a time, a liter of uh, petroleum, it was just a laxative according to Paracelsus' uh, medieval view of medicine. Gradually, we figure out how to extract interesting chemicals from it and become more and more valuable. Today, we can do all sorts of complicated organic synthesis out of that liter, and we can even burn it with more efficiency. So I think that if we manage to play our cards well, there is of course a very real chance that our species flubs it, we can actually make use of resources at an amazingly effective way, which would mean that we could actually live, well, harmony, I don't know, but live in the universe with, in a very sustainable way. So that, that was a, my question was a sort of purely speculative one, um, and I suppose we are in the realm of speculation here, but you are talking about real technologies that we actually have in our hands at the moment. What are some of the technologies that you think we might be able to use to move in that direction? Well, later on we are of course going to talk about, about the more biological one, but I have a very concrete example around my neck here. So this little medallion, it might look like a St. Christopher's medallion, you know, the Catholic saint of travelers, but this is very much secular or even atheist version. This is a cryonics tag. So it looks like the typical little medallions you have if you have hemophilia or epilepsy. So if you end up at the hospital, the doctors are supposed to, uh, to treat you accordingly. In this case, typically when doctors read it, the eyebrows start going up eventually reaching the stratosphere. Because it says that uh, if I start to then die seriously, call this number for a biostasis protocol, and start cooling the body while giving CPR, uh, inject 50,000 units of heparin, which is a ridiculously large amount, and you're not normally going to survive that much heparin. It keeps the blood from clotting. With, um, and you should cool with ice. That sounds rather weird for a life-saving treatment. But the point here is, the idea is to stop the process of decay so that I might be frozen. So this is a bit similar to what we heard earlier about the lady falling into the cold water. And we actually do a hypothermic surgery. You cool down the body so the life processes slow down and hopefully that gives you enough time to do some very tricky things. In this case, the idea is to slow down the life process as much as possible and eventually freeze me. Except, of course, that nothing is that simple. The real problem is uh, I'm about 100 kilograms of water. It takes an awfully long time on, uh, of cooling down that much water. Even if you dunk me in a tank of liquid nitrogen, it's going to take absolutely forever before my core freezes, at which point then, then that is, my brain is probably going to rub a mushy, although the outside is frozen. It's a bit like baked Alaska.
it's a, thermodynamics is a very uh, uh, tricky part of physics. So what you actually need to do is uh, to, to actually use my circulatory system to circulate a uh, cold liquid to cool me down quickly and ideally add stuff to prevent both tissue damage but also freezing. Uh, normally, when you freeze something in the in freezer, you get ice crystals. That's why raspberries, uh, when you freeze them and then pick them out, are all mushy and not very uh, nice. You get large ice crystals forming, punctuating uh, cell membranes. This is not good. I want to preserve myself. So uh, among the other chemicals that would be going into this mixture are certain cryoprotectants that try to achieve vitrification to actually get the water molecules to stop moving in a kind of glass-like state. It's an, sort of antifreeze. Yeah, it's antifreeze. And the problem, normal antifreeze is really, really toxic. Uh, this is slightly less toxic. However, as you might guess, this is not going to be very nice for the organism. So once this whole process has been done, which takes a while, of course, um, uh, I'm going to be frozen solid, hopefully in a vitrified state. And at that point you ask, so how can we tore up Anders again? And of course, if you just put me in a warm room, eventually I would tore up, but I will be Robin Mushy. We need very advanced medical technology, which doesn't exist yet. So this is where cryonics get from the realm of weird medicine over to interesting speculation. Do we believe that we can actually be saved in the further future? So this is a matter to some degree of gambling on that future medicine is going to be really awesome. And we have some reason to believe that medicine can revive people that are currently regarded as dead. Because back in the old days, of course, if you were not breathing, you were dead. Gradually, people realize, well, actually, artificial breathing can save those people. So some people that previously would have been left for dead actually turned out to be savable. And then we got CPR and even more heroic methods, which again meant that certain people that a few years before they introduced would have been dead, now aren't. Now, the big question is, could you actually envision technology that could even fix a vitrified body? And I think we've seen trends like that. Molecular medicine is still in very much in its infancy, and we're going to be decades before we have nanomachines that could do anything like that. But still, if you're frozen, there are no chemical processes, there are no diffusion, you actually have time to wait as long as you stay frozen. There are also interesting work among some of the people interested in this, on demonstrating it, of course, because there are plenty of skeptics for some strange reason. <laughs> so they demonstrate, for example, vitrification of rabbit kidneys, and that these kidneys, when you tore them up and implant them back in rabbits, they actually do function. So scaling that up, it's going to be many years before that happens. So overall, this is a total gamble, of course, but I've done a cold calculation. How much is my life worth to me? How much uh, does it cost? Hmm, what's the, pro the lowest probability I could accept to do this before taking my money and buying something other? And I realized, hmm, this is probably worthwhile. So that's, so that's the cryonics approach. Um, I, I just wanted quickly to get in, if we can, something about the possibility of, of uh, using computers yeah, yeah. to, to uh, uh, replicate ourselves, yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm a computational neuroscientist. I, I did my PhD on simulating parts of the brain. We have pretty nice methods uh, of doing that. We can take the physiology of nerve cells and simulate aspects of that. It's been done since Hodgkin and Huxley did this back in the 40s and 50s, using heroic hand-cranked calculations. Today we have super computers instead. So a frozen brain... Is how, how good are they? <laughs> well, you can't... If you're an experimental neuroscientist, you can't tell a simulated neuron signal apart from a real one. But that doesn't really tell you whether we're close enough. 
people have controlled parts of, uh, for example, the lobster and the stoma uh, stomatogastric ganglion system, which regulates how it swallows, by artificial neurons, and it's worked just as well. But that's still quite a long way from human consciousness. Yeah, yeah. So the interesting thing here is, can you scale this up to a human level? I've been working on this question, and it has plenty of interesting, both philosophical and technical questions. Can we get enough computer power to run a human brain? It looks like not yet, but we're already close to small mammalian brains. Uh, in a few decades, we're definitely going to have computers enough for it. Can we map out all the nerve cells? Yeah, right now we can't do it except in very small volumes. A small voxel of a few microns in retina is already plenty for current research. But again, the progress looks like it's going to be much bigger. And remember, we might be having quite a lot of time here. Uh, and the interesting thing is we might be able to take a frozen brain, slice it up and scan it. I have some uh, friends who actually have companies working on this. So right now, this is decades away, but being a computer nerd, I would expect that if I uh, end up suddenly having a heart attack and getting frozen, I would probably wake up as a computer simulation of myself rather than a real body. If I found myself in my real body, I would say, whoa, that's not exactly what I wished for, actually. <laughs> After all, I want to be able to reprogram with a menu choice to look like Brad Pitt or something. But uh, <laughs> it's still an interesting problem. So I've been working on what research projects do we need to start? What do we need to solve before this? And of course, my fellow philosophers have all over it about can consciousness appear in software? Can a piece of software really be me? in the identity sense. Well, it raises all kinds of questions, which I'm sure that the audience will want to bring up later about um, if, if you are just a brain and not a body, because I'm assuming you're not going to simulate the rest of your, your body. To what extent are well, you, you a real person? Need, you actually need to have quite a lot of body simulation, because a brain on its own doesn't make sense. No. In order to speak, I need to send signals to my vocal muscles. In order to see, I need to be able to swivel my eyes around. So I need to have a virtual body doing all of that. I'm probably going to end up with much more hypochondric as software as in a real body. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we move on, and, and we've got four speakers this afternoon rather than three, so I need to be really tight in my control of the time. But I'd like to just, without starting a big discussion, if there are any questions the three of you are burning to ask, Anders, at this point, go for it. Well, I'll just have one. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've been talking about what if we all become super beings. And I think maybe we need to unpack that we a little bit because the assumption is that we would all have equal access to this technology. If that's not the assumption, then I think you know, we perhaps need to talk about who does have access to it. I think there are issues of justice that we really need to look at uh, in the real world, <laughs> which is one in which we do have resource allocation problems, as everyone knows at the moment, the budget just having occurred earlier in the week. Um, and I think there are also questions, to my mind, these aren't the most telling questions about enhancement, but I think they are interesting. There are questions about what sort of moral sense super beings would have. And some people um, say that there's absolutely no indication that they would necessarily be psychopathic. But, <laughs> but there is the possibility that they would regard those of us who are not enhanced as inferior. Let's just put that and question to Anders. Yes. What do you think of that? We can um, pursue it more later. Well, I, most of the people I know who are kind of into extreme life extension, although there might be a kind of selfishness in that they actually care about their own life, they're not very sociopathic. 
there are probably a few bad eggs, but most of them strike me as quite nice people. And a lot of them are actually surprisingly altruistic. They're actually very interested in figuring out how can we make this cheap. Sorry, I don't mean you right no, now. No, 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 no. I, I know that. <laughs> but even future super beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean uh, but, uh, future uh, yeah. super beings. Yeah. Uh, I, I also think, uh, why are we nasty against uh, somebody? Well, quite often because we regard as the other. We need to worry about them, or we feel we need to worry about it. We don't... When people are nasty against animals, for example, it's usually because they want to be feel superior. So I think that's the problem. It's about the culture. I don't think it's about being super being itself. That doesn't make you nasty. It's more about what culture do you create. So, for example, when it comes to enhancement, it's surprising how few people actually want it. Enhancement. Cryonics is not terribly popular. It's been around <laughs> since the 60s. About 200 people are frozen. About 2,000 people got contract. Compare that to all the kind of weird nutrition fads we all hear about or the t- the taking pills of, that are quite expensive. People spend a lot of money on very strange things. So I think we have a problem with our priorities as a species, and that's a very deep problem which uh, goes beyond this discussion. We need to fix that. Okay. There's a standard trope in science fiction of immortal beings, and they tend to be either psychopathic or mischievous. Mm-hmm. So it, it stri- strikes me... Can you hear it? Can you yes. It, it strikes me that um, living forever might be quite dull, and the only way you actually get around that is by being a bit naughty. <laughs> well, in a sense, we are already living forever. Compared to our ancestors a few generations back, we have enormously long lives, but, and almost no limitations on the material resources. We, of course, know that we have mortgages to pay and so on, but we have an enormous wealth. And we're spe- are, we, in a sense, we are spending it in mischievous and weird ways. However, we would say, well, a lot of what we're doing is actually not terribly bad things. It's actually creative and interesting. I think our problem is we have no concept of really what real immortals would be like. So we kind of map it onto our mythology, where, of course, most gods are mischievous or sociopathic. Uh, that's why they're kind of godlike. Uh, a really humane and nice god wouldn't be very godly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you remember that, I might have something to say about yeah. that. <laughs> So now I'd like to move on to Adam. Uh, Adam Rutherford trained as a geneticist and currently works for the magazine Nature, where he produces their weekly podcasts. And he also has numerous programmes to his name on on Radio 4 and BBC TV, including his award-winning series on The Cell. Um, His first book is out next month. Where's it gone? There it is. And it has a rather interesting conceit, which you don't often see in books. Here it is. It's called Creation, the Origin of Life. No, it's not. It's called Creation, the Future of Life. So you've got two books for the price of one here. You just start from the other end and you get the other book. Uh, and so Adam's, um, I, I think rather cleverly, uh, gone back to look at how life began, the basic building blocks that somehow got together with the spark that Fran was talking about earlier and turned into a living thing, uh, and then gone on to look at the, the kind of technology that's going on today to see if we can recreate that process uh, in a laboratory. Um, so, Adam, um, one thing I think we haven't really nailed yet is that life seems to um, break the laws of, of physics. It's going in the wrong direction, and everything is supposed to be going gently downhill towards entropy, and yet life is increasing order. And how do we, how do we reconcile that? How do well, we understand yeah, that? Yes, so, so, so one of the things about looking at the origin of life is that you, uh, no matter how you think about it, when you begin... The, the process of writing this book and the, and the narrative structure in it is that... 
the three great ideas of biology have all emerged in a, in a, 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 a period of about 100 years between the middle of the uh, 19th century and the middle of the 20th century. And they all say the same thing. So that's, the, that's cell theory and um, evolution by natural selection and Crick and Watson and the structure of DNA. And they, they all, if you put them all together, they all um, uh, sort of map out on the, on the grand tree of life and draw us back and back, and back to a single point where we have uh, a transition from abiotic chemicals uh, to a process where we have what we now call life, cellular life. And the, the discussion in the first half about, what, what, well, trying to define what death is, biologists struggle to define what life is in exactly the same way. And it, it certainly is a process more than something that you can define. Fran talked about her, um, her uh, iron channels as being a, a, a fundamental facet of, uh, of, of the things that all cells do. But I think there's one that underlies that even more, and that is a, a more uh, a basic biochemical property, which is how life uh, uh, extracts energy from its from its environment, and you mentioned entropy, and and has mentioned thermodynamics, and I think that many of the models of how we've looked and thought about what life is and how life works have um, neglected to address this basic law of the universe, which is the second second law of thermodynamics, which is as as Georgina was saying, there, there is a tendency towards chaos. The measure of chaos being. Uh, this concept called entropy, and it being a non-negotiable law of the universe that entropy will only ever increase. Chaos will only ever get greater. Um, and ultimately, the fate of the universe is one where it is entirely chaotic, and all energy is distributed evenly across the whole of the universe, and we'll all be dead. Life is the only process we know of which slows down the inevitable um, descent towards chaos. And so when we're talking about immortality, I would argue, I, I'm, I'm a, I come from a, a pure science, evolutionary genetics background, so I'm, I find it difficult to talk about people because they're very difficult to do experiments on, and they're, <laughs> and they're way too complex to, to even begin to understand. But when I think about, think about the basics of life, I'm thinking about this underlying process, the shared uh, dynamics of exactly what all cells that have ever existed. We talk about death being the end of consciousness or the end of electrical activity in the brain or stopping breathing. Almost every organism that has ever existed in the universe, as far as we know, doesn't have a brain and has never breathed. But all of them, all of them have this underlying uh, metabolic process, which is the generation of energy the harnessing of energy and the slowing down of decay. And so whilst trying to wrangle the various many definitions of life that people have been talking about for as, as long as we've been asking that question, um, the best one, the most succinct one that I could come up with is that life is the opposite of decay. And I realize that's slightly circular and doesn't necessarily help us proceed in understanding what life and what death is. But I like, I, I like to think in a sort of uh, uh, a trivial way that um, you represent uh, a modicum of order in an ultimately chaotic universe. And every single cell that has ever existed has done that continuously for four billion years in an absolutely perfect, unbroken chain. And so when you talk about immortality, we are already. 
think that's that's a very very worth thinking about. But now looking at the going from the other end of your book, the future of life, how um, have technologists, engineers, I think we should call them engineers, been able to take that understanding of the this process of energy generation in the cell, unpack it and try and use that knowledge uh, to, to build new, essentially new forms of life? Sure, sure. So um, this, this is, this is what, what you're referring to in the second half of the book is about um, the, the same processes that have allowed us to understand what life is and how life has evolved over four billion years basically 150 years of biology, but most, most significantly in the last 60 years since understanding the structure of the double helix, so the advent of molecular, what we call molecular biology. Um, since we began to understand that all life is based on the, uh, the double helix, the, the letters of the genetic code, which are universal, all life forms that have ever existed as far as we know, use exactly the same lexicon, the same alphabet, the same language. And um, once we deciphered that code, which was done um, that the other university, the, the one that one that one, Cambridge, um, the once once that was cracked and we saw that it was universal, we we tooled ourselves up to do something that we couldn't do before. So for about ten thousand years, we've been manipulating life, we've been breeding, we call it farming, but we, it's entirely the opposite of natural selection. It's it's called artificial selection, um, and in fact. As all of you have definitely read The Origin of Species, you'll all know that the first chapter is not about natural selection at all. It's about artificial selection in pigeons. And Darwin is using this as an example of how uh, species are mutable. They can change over time. But he uses pigeons because they've been bred, fancy pigeons, and with ridiculous names like pouter and trumpeter, with huge extended fluffy bits on their necks and their feet. But he's using them as an example of how species are mutable and how we can change them. So, that's farming. That's the process of uh, artificial selection. We've been doing that for, for uh, at least 10,000 years. In 1973, we invented the ability to do exactly the same thing, but not limited to the process of breeding as facilitated by sex, right? So uh, farming relies on having two animals that are capable of reproducing with each other. Um, but with the advent of molecular biology and genetic engineering, we, ha we invented the technology to take a bit of genetic material from one organism and stick it in um, the genome of another organism that could have been separated by a billion years of evolution. And so that's genetic modification. And, and we've been doing that quite happily for, for uh, 20 or 30 years, not just in terms of the food and um, the things that are sometimes in the in the news and with slight controversy, but also this is the absolute mainstay of all modern molecular biology. The Human Genome Project that you've, you've probably heard about is, is, could not have happened in any way without being based on exactly this technology, the ability to take a bit of DNA from one creature and grow it up in another. And that's how we understand, that's, that's where our current understanding of, of, um, of human genetics and all genetics is, is based on. The, what I talk about in the book, and what, what you're alluding to here in this sort of slightly rambly preamble, is, um, is that it's, uh, it's, in the last few years, genetic engineering has made a step change um, in terms of how the technology is being used. So it's, it's slightly unfortunate that genetic engineering is referred to as engineering, because genetic modification is, mu is a much more accurate term for it. 
the, the step change, the evolved form of genetic engineering is referred to as synthetic biology, but it's really an engineering discipline because it's not fundamentally um, uh, about answering scientific questions. It's about using the principles of engineering, specifically electrical engineering, computing, um, to answer problems of food production, drug production, environmental issues, um, did I say fuel, fuel production, even space exploration, which we might talk about let's, in, let's in a minute. Let's just take one example, because I think space exploration would be a, a good example to take. It's certainly the most extreme, <laughs> extreme example. Yeah. Um, so, but the, 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 tool, the key thing is that the tools that are at, at our disposal now or are emerging as a field in synthetic biology are basically redesigned, remixed bits of DNA. So they are, they are evolved, but then redesigned. They are intelligently designed by us. Um, and so having these as, as commodities, having, these, having a toolkit as, uh, as, a, as a, a way of addressing engineering issues is something that many, many scientists are looking at very seriously now, including NASA. And NASA's main goal is, is to explore new worlds. Um, so you might not think that using DNA technology might be that um, useful for doing that, but, it, but it, it hugely is. And there's a very serious synthetic biology project based at NASA Ames in, in, um, near San Francisco. And two striking examples of synthetic biology to aid exploration, space exploration, are, um, uh, well, okay, so what, one is in terms of terraforming, right? So the most expensive bit about exploring space is getting off this, right? Once you're up there, it's, it's relatively easy to move about. But getting from here to a few miles up is incredibly expensive. I think the estimate is it's a, something like $30,000 per kilogram to get off Earth. So if we're talking seriously about terraforming, which we may do later, forming new colonies on new planets, Mars potentially, um, you don't want to be carrying a lot of, a, a lot of uh, hardware with you. So uh, NASA refers to this, uh, this concept as in situ um, resource utilization. So the idea that rather than taking building materials with you, you use what is up there. So they call it in-situ resource utilization. I call it careful packing. So there are certain types of bacteria that secrete calcite, um, which acts as a cement, right? So a cementing agent. So if you have these bacteria in fine sand, in the right conditions, they secrete calcite, and they form uh, blocks. They form bricks. So one of, the, one of the projects, one of the synthetic biology projects at Ames is to design a synthetic circuit in a bacteria that if you put inside, um, they're using a, a fake moon dust or a fake Mars dust, regolith it's called, uh, if you put these bacteria inside little molds containing the, uh, the, the sand, they secrete their calcite and they form a brick. So they call them rego bricks. And this is a serious project. It sounds, it sounds nonsensical, but the, the idea being that if you can take a capsule of bacteria that can do this up to Mars, you can then grow them up once you get them there. And you use the building materials you see around you. So you don't have to carry a heavy thing. So um, shall I do the second example, or do you want to I think move, let's, move on? I think let's leave it for now. I mean, I just... Um, Oh, maybe I'll, I'll save that one for later mm. as well. I think we'll, we'll, you've said a lot. Let's mm, just give, sure. once again, give the other panellists a chance to ask you. A, mm. and, and we're going for kind of specific questions at this point. We'll be more discursive later. Mm. But if anybody's got us, yes, Paul. Yes, maybe if I can, actually. I was fascinated by uh, what uh, you Paul, had to say there. Could you just there. switch the microphone towards yourself? Thank you. Yeah. We're going to have to share that one. 
So is there anything very specific about life itself which helps it to outwit entropy? Is it merely just the capture of energy that's involved in this, or do you see it as, as being a bit broader than that? Well, I, um, I think life is broader than the, our ability to well, capture, ca- capture, capture agree, entropy. Which is why I asked. So, <laughs> so when, when we think about, so the way we get taught this at school is a checklist, right? We don't, when we think about what life is, we actually are more questioning what life does. Mm. So the checklist that I learned at school was Mrs. Gren, which and I'm not yep. going to be able to remember yep. them, but it's um, movement, respiration, mm, uh, sentience of some sort. Help me out here. Um, so, um, growth. Growth. Feeding um, is one of them, isn't it? Anyway, the rest reproduction. So it's a description of all the things that life does, or many mm. of the things that, that, that life does. And of course, Reproduction is absolutely key. And many of the definitions so far, including NASA's, is that um, replication is mm. the key to... Mm. It, that, that, that is the nearest we can get to a definition of life. So reproduction with modification, which is a very Darwinian view yeah. of, of what yeah. life is. Um, I, I would argue that whilst that is something that we see all life forms doing, there is a, it cannot ha- operate mm. without an energetic input. Mm. So the process of reproducing a cell, the process of DNA replicating itself every time a cell divides in your body, which is happening right now and has been happening continuously for four billion years, that can only happen with an energetic input from um, a basic metabolic process. Mm. So I'm not that into labels. I'm not, I don't think, I think trying to define these things is often not very helpful. But I do think that unless, and this is more important for an experiment, looking at it experimentally, I do think that if you're not thinking about thermodynamics as a living process, Mm. and you're in an origin of life lab, you're probably asking the wrong question. Okay. It's actually worth noting that in some of my research about the really, really, really extreme far future, uh, I'm also kind of looking at life from a completely thermodynamic uh, situation. I'm, of course, looking at trillions of years in the future. What kind of complex process could go on in a very old universe? And again, mm-hmm. it's thermodynamics. It's probably not going to be squishy cells with water, but uh, it's still going to be doing these tricks to kind of make sure that entropy doesn't mm-hmm. win. At least for this moment, at least at least, at least not until it's replicated itself a little bit more. The analogy I use is a, a gambling one. So the, the main rule of gambling is that the house always wins. Everyone knows that. That's why nobody gambles ever. <laughs> so that entropy always wins, and we can't argue with that. But living processes, you can take something back from the house and you can do it continuously forever. Right. Well, that brings us, I think, very neatly to Paul. Um, Paul Fairchild is co-director of the Oxford Stem Cell Institute, which is part of the Oxford Martin School and carries out research at the interface between stem cell biology and immunology. Um, So his work falls under the general heading of regenerative medicine, uh, and he's interested particularly in the problem of tolerance in organ and tissue transplantation. Uh, And he's also the author of a a recent book, The Immunological Barriers to Regenerative Medicine. Try saying that late (laughs) late at night. Um, So, Paul, um, I'm just going to pick you up on that term, regenerative medicine. It sounds a bit like something Mary Shelley might have dreamt up. Um, Mm. You're not talking about raising people from the dead. So what do you mean by the term? 
Well, actually, I've just been struck by the fact that I, I run a medical laboratory, life sciences, and I don't think I've ever asked a question about thermodynamics. So I'm obviously asking completely the wrong questions here, which is a little worrying, but uh, my apologies there. So regenerative medicine, yeah, I mean, it's a term that's banded around a lot, actually, at the moment. But uh, really, when we use the term, we're trying to uh, imply that we may be able to use stem cells in particular to try and uh, outwit the aging process, maybe even to outwit death, to prolong life, possibly, although that's not actually our, our initial, initial uh, remit, uh, but particularly to try and overcome degeneration and degenerative diseases in particular. So exactly so, the kind of thing we were talking about earlier today, that these, this, the process of decay, mm, um, you, you mm. would argue, is something that, we, that can be challenged. I think so, although in the way that I look at it, decay is something, in my mind, that happens after death, whereas degeneration is something that happens in all of us over time. So uh, many of us will develop degenerative diseases of some kind or other. That's not quite the same in my mind as, as decay, but certainly stem cells, we hope, might be able to, to turn back that clock and to help uh, rejuvenate tissues so or let's to replace just, them. <clears throat> let's just review what, what stem mm. cells are. Mm. Well, actually, the stem cells are a very important population of cells, of course, because you find them in pretty much each and every tissue of the body. Now, those are said to be adult stem cells, and they are said to be multipotent. So they are little pockets of rejuvenating activity, which can then replace many of the cell types which make up that particular tissue. But there are some more important populations of stem cells as well, which we uh, have been working on, and those are said to be pluripotent. And that those means are they the, can do anything? That means, effectively, that uh, a pluripotent stem cell could turn into each and every one of the 210 cell types that make up the human body, as long as we know how to do that. So if we can direct them in vitro to differentiate along particular pathways, then we can generate very specifically the populations of cells that we might be interested in, in trying to uh, overcome degenerative disease. So those pluripotent stem cells uh, usually come either from early embryos, usually embryos that are surplus to requirements in uh, IVF clinics, but now actually we have the opportunity just to take any somatic cell of the body, so that's literally just any cell, it could be skin cell, it could be a little bit of pancreas, anything that's available effectively, and then reprogram them back to this state of pluripotency. And that's a, a very exciting and uh, uh, opportunity, really, that we can take just a small biopsy from anyone who presents with a degenerative disease, and then reprogram those cells back to pluripotency, and then differentiate from them the very cell types that we need to try and cure that disease state. So, so you're uh, avoid, by doing that, you're avoiding the problem. No, let me not put words in your mouth. So what, what were the issues <laughs> with embryonic stem cells that made people mm, feel mm. that that was a way that um, had, had to, a lot of problems, really, that, mm, that needed to be avoided? Yeah, yeah. Well, there are various problems with embryonic stem cells. Um, ethically, of course, it requires the actual destruction of an embryo. Although once you have derived an embryonic stem cell line, then it's uh, available for good because pluripotency has this capacity for indefinite self-renewal. So it's, it's so immortal again, like the cells it's, we That's exactly what I was about to say. Mm. It almost outwits death. So we've talked a lot uh, in the previous session about healer cells, you may remember, and they have survived from a lady for many decades now, but they're very abnormal cells. So these are transformed cells, they're cancerous cells. But in the case of pluripotent stem cells, they are not abnormal in any sense at all. And in fact, uh, they are just continue to proliferate and can grow indefinitely. In fact, in my laboratory, we have uh, several embryonic stem cell lines, some of the very first ones that were ever generated in, uh, from humans, 
um, and they are still proliferating and growing now about 12 years after they were first derived. And in fact, they haven't lost any of their pluripotency, so we can turn them into pretty much any cell type of the body that we might wish to, uh, to study or to you use. Say, you say that as if so, that sounds like a good thing, but um, I mean, that's a characteristic of cancer cells, isn't it, that they have that... Uh, the capacity to continue, yes, yeah. absolutely, and, and that is one of the issues actually in regenerative medicine. It's trying to stop cells actually become tumorigenic. So uh, we have to control their ability to proliferate and to differentiate. And that's actually a lot of what's going on in regenerative medicine at the moment, is trying to learn to control pluripotency and to use it for our purposes. So let's go so, back and talk about the induced pluripotency, because that sounds at least mm, it avoids the mm. ethical problem of destroying yep. embryos. Yes. So what are the good yeah. and bad points there? Well, the good points are that we can do this in what's called an autologous fashion. So we can actually take a, a biopsy from an individual with a particular disease state. We can then create these pluripotent stem cells from them and then derive tissues that we want to put back into that same individual. So that simplifies the ethics enormously. There's, there's no embryos involved in this at all. And it also means that uh, the issues of immunological rejection of the tissue are far less. But also, this has overcome all of the problems of, uh, that were surrounding cloning technology, in fact. And in fact, that's very apposite because, of course, uh, cloning was originally performed uh, here in Oxford, actually. And uh, John Gurdon won the uh, Nobel Prize for that last year, as you may already know. And he was actually a student at uh, Christchurch when he did that work. Um, so, of course, induced pluripotency actually avoids the need for, for cloning technology. So it's simplified things enormously in that, uh, in that sense. Uh, but is there a downside? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that the downside is, again, the, the risk of, of tumorigenicity. <clears throat> so one of the issues in trying to uh, transform somatic cells back to pluripotency is that we have to introduce a number of, uh, of genes into these cells, and that then risks what's called insertional mutagenesis. So we could actually a accidentally cause these cells to become tumorigenic. So a lot of the barriers, actually, to, to the use of these cells in vivo at the moment are, are trying to work out the safety implications. So is there any likelihood that these cells could, could remain uh, actively proliferating once they're put back into a person? And so how far have we got? I mean, have, have uh, mm. people been treated using this technology already? Well, so far, nobody's actually been treated with induced pluripotent stem cells, the ones you mentioned. Uh, but there are certainly many clinical trials using embryonic stem cells, which are the, kind of the precursors of induced pluripotency. And they're still very much the gold standard in the whole field. Um, so there have been studies of uh, spinal cord injury, and uh, uh, a number of people have been treated with uh, neurons that have been differentiated from human embryonic stem cells. There's also a, uh, a study that's ongoing at the moment for the treatment of macular degeneration of the eye. And again, uh, uh, retinal pigmented epithelial cells have been uh, uh, introduced into that small area, the macula of the eye, to try and replace those that have been uh, that are degenerated with time. And actually, uh, there have been some very positive reports that uh, the people have increased their visual acuity as a result of that. So there are, there are very hopeful signs that we may be on on the cusp, if you like, of beginning to see pluripotency used in vivo. Mm. Uh, you mentioned, I'm sorry, I'm prompting you now, but you mentioned to me when we spoke <laughs> earlier what sounded to me a very interesting uh, possibility where you've got a very cartilaginous tissue that you could use that as a framework on which to grow uh, cells that might right, then make yes. a, a functioning yeah. spare part. Mm. Well, that's certainly been done. Um, in fact, there are a number of uh, anecdotal cases, and one which was very famous in 2008 was a, uh, a lady called uh, Claudia, uh, who was a Spanish lady, and uh, was given only a couple of months to live, in fact, because one of her bronchi had become occluded. 
And so uh, a, a team of people here in the UK actually were involved in doing this, took the uh, trachea from a, a cadaveric donor, so somebody who had tragically died, and then stripped it of all of the, uh, the cellular component, but then reseeded it with, the, uh, with Claudia's own mesenchymal stem cells, which were then able to replace all of the tissues within it. So they effectively used this trachea as a, as a scaffold on which to, to build the whole organ and then replace the, uh, uh, the damaged bronchus. And in fact, she, she now lives very happily in Spain and uh, recovered completely her function. So there have been some, some good cases where this is, uh, has actually proved very beneficial to individuals. It's difficult to do that on a large scale, of course, but, uh, but nevertheless, there are particular individuals who have certainly benefited from that. So just looking in the long term, I mean, is, is the, how realistic <laughs> is it to see the kind of regenerative medicine you're talking about uh, as a strategy <laughs> for postponing uh, or reversing uh, the effects of aging. I mean, can we go on <clears throat> replacing bits of ourselves mm. with spare parts, um, just as we might uh, a much-loved vintage car? <laughs> well, it would certainly be very labour-intensive, it must be said. Um, I think there are hopes that we will be able to treat very specific disease states. Um, I think the, the hope for regenerative medicine isn't really to increase lifespan any longer than it currently is. It is merely to try and alleviate suffering during that lifespan. And I think the ideal for all of medicine is to try and maintain the function of people as long as possible and just before death. So instead of a very long and, and precipitous decline in function, which is what degenerative diseases cause, that we would actually be able to reverse that process, not necessarily increase their lifespan, although that may be an outcome, but we're not specifically intending to do so, mm -hmm. but then uh, to try and maintain their function for as long as possible before death. Okay, thanks very much. And once again, if anybody has a specific question to put to Paul, we can take that now, but we'll have more discussion later. Yeah, sure, I do. I do. Um, um, when, we think about, when we think about these types of therapies, mm -hmm. the, I mean, obviously there are many, many different diseases that might benefit from stem cell treatments, mm -hmm. being able to grow new tissue. But the one that I guess is, that is most striking is the tissue that we have that is least capable of growing itself back. Yeah. And that's our brains. Mm. So what, mm. type of, what type of diseases and what type of work, what, what is the sort of mm. you know, prognosis of whether we can actually get mm. re brain tissue regeneration? Which is a very good uh, question, actually. Um, for, for about uh, 15, or until about 15 years ago, it was absolutely assumed that the brain had no regenerative capacity of its own. But actually, we now know that that isn't the case and that there are at least two locations within the brain which actually harbor populations of neural stem cells. And these have certainly been used for a number of different therapies. Um, there's one actually a clinical trial that's ongoing at the moment uh, for the treatment of the uh, effects of stroke, for instance, and there have been some beneficial effects from that. So actually delivering these mesen or rather neural stem cells which are taken from cadaveric donors and then showing that they can actually repair some of that damage. Uh, one of the low-hanging fruit, we hope, for regenerative medicine would actually be the treatment of Parkinson's disease, for instance. And the reason that Parkinson's disease is so attractive is, is that it's caused by the loss of just one particular type of neuron, which is the dopaminergic neuron in the striatum of the brain. So in fact, if you could just replace that small population of dopaminergic neurons, there is the possibility of actually reversing many of the, uh, the symptoms. Uh, so that really is, is, is the hope. But it might also be applicable to other diseases, even dementias, perhaps, like uh, Alzheimer's disease. So I think there is a, a real, very real possibility that even brain disorders or problems could be, uh, could be treated. 
Okay, thanks very much. I'd now like to turn to, to Donna Dickinson. I think it's absolutely essential that we have Donna on this panel because we've been talking a lot about what we could do. Uh, and I think we'll turn to Donna uh, to raise some of the questions about what we should do uh, in, in this context. So Donna is an author, activist, and academic. She thinks and writes about the ethics of biotechnology. She's Emeritus Professor of Medical Ethics at the University of London and an honorary fellow of the Helex Centre here at Oxford, which is the Centre for Health, Law, and Emerging Technologies. Uh, she's the author of many books, the most recent of which, if I may borrow mm -hmm. it, uh, is um, All That Matters, Bioethics. Uh, she's also written uh, about uh, attitudes to death and dying, and in her previous book, Body Shopping, she explored the commodification of the human body, which covers a lot of the issues about uh, taking um, um, donor tissue from uh, cadaveric or other kinds of, uh, kinds of donors. So, Donna, before we get into the detail of, of some of these technologies we've been hearing about, um, where do you stand on this whole question of whether death is something we should be seeking to avoid? Right. Well, I would like to take us back to sort of first principles here, and I'd like to, to locate this discussion in the sort of sci the scientific discussion in the social and economic context, because I think that really is quite crucial. Uh, I just want to say I've worked in medical schools most of my life. I'm not a Luddite. <laughs> I really try very hard to, to know my science and, and to go through Cochrane reviews and things like that before I make any pronouncements. And I'm also not opposed to embryonic stem cells, so I'm not one of those ethicists. Okay. Um, I'm a science-friendly ethicist, I think. But I do think that we are facing, we are at a crossroads, I think. We have many promissory technologies, and some of them have more promise than others, but it's not really my position to, my job to go into that. But I think what many of these promissory technologies have in common is that they are about making us better individuals. Now, I think enhancement is the most obvious of those, the best me I can possibly be, or the idea uh, that we have something called procreative beneficence, which Gillian Savalescu, who's a professor here, has written about. Can to you produce, explain that? Yes, the idea is to produce the best children we possibly can. So it's a bit like the best me I can possibly be, but for our children instead. And many of those seem to me rather individualistic approaches to medicine. The best individual I can possibly be the best individual my child can possibly be. And if we look at other stem cell technologies and other types of technologies, they fall into what I call in my new book, the one that's coming out in May, there's a flyer outside, uh, me medicine. And I don't mean that necessarily to mean it's selfish, but I mean that it is about producing the best me I can possibly be, or it's about producing something like a personal spare parts kit. Now, I know this isn't the kind of stem cell research you work on, Paul, but there was work done in Korea about eight years ago on producing what's called somatic cell nuclear transfer stem cell lines, which would be individualized, I'm oversimplifying wildly, I know, spare parts kits for individuals. That particular research turned out to have been fraudulent. And that is not, again, I'm not <laughs> calling anybody names. Uh, I'm not for a moment implying that stem cell research is fraudulent in itself, this particular finding was. But what was interesting was the huge acclaim it got. The scientist in question, Huang Wu Suk, a Korean scientist, received offers of franchising his discovery and indeed offered to set up a sort of world stem cell hub. Why was there so much interest? Well, I think it corresponded to this idea of a personal spare parts kit just for you or your child or someone you love alone. And 
I've been looking in the new book at other technologies, which I think fall into this Mimetsen parallel. Uh, one of them, which you may have encountered, I don't know, is private umbilical cord blood banking, whereby a portion of the umbilical cord blood, about 30% usually, is not allowed to flow to the baby in childbirth, in the last stage of childbirth, that is, after the expulsion of the baby, but before the expulsion of the placenta, but is instead diverted into a sort of potential spare parts kit if stem cell science advanced to the point where it could be used that way. And there has been major corporate interest in this sort of banking. When I was on the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists Ethics Committee, which I was for some years, we actually put out a warning that this was actually not at the moment borne out by the science, and actually that blood was needed by the baby. <laughs> There's a reason in nature why it's supposed to flow to the baby, and that there was an increased risk of, of jaundice and other sequelae. Now, my point is not really to get bogged down in the discussion of that, but just to say that there's a sort of common thread here. This is personal spare parts kits. It's me medicine, in my view. And what's the, what's the alternative? What, what do you think we're neglecting if we focus too much on these individual approaches? Well, I think the alternative is we medicine. <laughs> and I think we have had we medicine that has produ produced the greatest increases in our lifespan since the early 20th century. Someone, I think it was Kevin in the previous session, mentioned that at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, the average male lifespan in this country was 45. Now it's 70-something, 70 75. The average woman's was 50. Now it's near the 80s. And why is that? Well, it's because of we medicine. It's not because of me medicine. It's because of vaccination. It's because of sanitation. It's because of public health measures. Now, in an ideal world, we could have both. And that would be wonderful. But we are facing a situation of scarce resources. And we have a situation in which that is augmented, I think, by the scares, I think, that we do sometimes get in the media about things like vaccination. I'm sure everyone remembers the recent scare that we had, well, not that recent, it was back in 1998, about the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, which resulted in a huge diminution in the number of parents who wanted to immunize their babies with all three of the vaccines. And that then resulted in a drop in herd immunity, population immunity. Why is that important? Well, there are groups of people, the elderly and neonates, who either cannot process vaccines as effectively or for whom it would be dangerous to administer vaccines, particularly neonates. So when you have herd immunity, you have what I think of as a commons, um, like the, you know, the commons in land, very much the same, or the commons in the human genome. And when you have herd immunity, you have a sort of commons which protects everyone. So it is a we function. It protects those who cannot be vaccinated themselves. But when enough parents decide, well, I won't do it, for perfectly good reasons in many cases, you know, conscientious parents, then that, when it falls below a certain level, which is usually thought to be somewhere around 88%, affects everyone. And what I'm really concerned with is that in the midst of all these extremely exciting promissory technologies, that we not lose sight of the technologies that we do have which have actually been pretty effective, and those are the we technologies. So it's not that the technologies themselves are not necessarily ethically problematic, it's the question of where we focus our resources that you're most concerned about. Yes, and issues about justice, I think, also. That is, 
again, given that we do have limited resources, that's the iron law of economics, isn't it? Economics is called the dismal science because it's about how we allocate scarce resources. And given that we have that problem, we in the West may be tempted to spend our money on cryogenics, which is fine. You know, if you want to do that, that's absolutely fine. But those who haven't got that sort of resource, where does that leave them? Does it mean that the glamorization, and I think there is a lot more glamour in the, the me technologies than in the we. The we is kind of boring old hat. <laughs> After all, I mean, if you look at smallpox vaccination, it originated from cowpox. I mean, how unglamorous is that? <laughs> so I think the me medicine technologies do partake of the sort of glamour of the new. And by contrast, something like vaccination or the fear of pandemics, in those areas, the unknown is a threat, whereas the unknown in the new technologies, the promissory technologies, is exciting. So it's understandable that the media and others will focus on them. And I think I'm just pleading for balance, pleading for balance really. I'm not condemning any of the new technologies, although there are ethicists who do. I mean, I'm not one of them who mm. is skeptical about embryonic stem cells, for example. I have no problem with that. Do, do you think we um, have come to expect too much in the way of avoiding death and disease as a result of the kinds of reports we hear about what technology might be able to offer? Or should, should we be ambitious and, and even um, ha have these high expectations? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we should be ambitious. We should have high expectations. Also for other countries too, not just those in the wealthy West. But at the same time, as we were hearing in the first panel, we are also quite afraid of things like pandemics. Now, I personally am a little more um, skeptical about vaccine skepticism <laughs> than I think maybe some of the earlier speakers were. And I think pandemics, given the ease with which the flu virus in particular mutates, I, I personally think that they are a danger. I think also that uh, in the swine flu pandemic, I hadn't realized this until I went to a conference in London, but we all heard that the peak occurred in October 2009, and then there was nothing. In fact, there was another peak in October 2010, which the media didn't bother to tell us about. So I think we have got very ambivalent attitudes to, to answer your question, and I think we are easily frightened, perhaps, but maybe also easily seduced. That's very good. Thank you, Donna. Um, anybody? Yes, we're, we're, everybody, they've all got their hands up. So I'll give you one question each quite quickly because I then want to go to the audience. So um, uh, I'm going to start with Anders because we haven't heard from him recently. Well, yeah. the, the resource thing is interesting. One thing I quite often talk about when talking about enhancement is the difference between gadgets and services. The, it, uh, gadgets can become very cheap, even if they're super advanced. That's why we have smartphones, even among goat herders in Kyrgyzstan today. Meanwhile, services, you need to pay the doctors and nurses. They don't come down in price. So it seems like the technology we're talking about here, if they're based on a service, you need to go to the doctor to get the stem cells, or you need the service of cryonics company, then they tend to be rather expensive. If you can automate them, then they would come down in price. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yes, um, more of a comment, actually. But um, first of all, maybe I can declare that I actually do have a very close link with uh, what you call we medicine. Uh, because I think mentioned in the, uh, in the previous session was the actual effects of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, I actually inhabit the very lab where penicillin was mm -hmm. first derived as the, uh, the very first antibiotic. 
So uh, I have a very close association with We Medicine, which has been hugely successful. But I also wanted just to fly the flag a little bit for Me Medicine, because there have been some very successful Me Medicines, mm -hmm. and of course transplantation, organ transplantation, is a very good example of that. And you can't think of any treatment, I think, which would be more dovetailed to the individual than organ transplantation. But also, you know, the use of prostheses, for instance, is another example where, which has been hugely beneficial to many, many people. Mm -hmm. And is costly, but nevertheless, it's certainly beneficial and is accepted by society. So there have been a lot of me medicines yes. which are extremely successful. The other thing I wanted to say is that uh, stem cell biology isn't necessarily a me medicine. No. And in fact, uh, one of the... Um, good aspects, I suppose, or the useful properties of pluripotent stem cells is that capacity to continue to proliferate indefinitely. And of course, that means that just a single either embryonic stem cell line or iPS cell line, so mm -hmm. induced pluripotent stem cell line, could actually treat hundreds of thousands of people. There's actually no upper limit to the number of people that could be yes. treated if we could over, only over get, overcome the rejection of the tissues. So. Uh, Stem cell biology isn't necessarily a me medicine. Let's mm -hmm. just take Adam's question, and then would, can you, can like you manage to, to retain it? Yes, then I'll give it. Let's just take sure. Adam's question. Then um, my, mine is more of a, uh, a comment as well, I'm afraid. Um, at the, high, the, the, the synthetic biology I was talking about on, on terraforming Mars is still, uh, it's very exciting, and it's very dramatic, but it's still very much in the realm of fantasy. The high watermark for the synthetic biology project, which we will see the fruits of hitting the market in the next few months, is the commercialization of producing artemisinin, mm -hmm. which is the most effective um, treatment for malaria, which I think we mm -hmm. discussed in the last session. But I, there is one calculation that malaria has killed more people in history than any other thing, um, depending on how you define humans. Um, but uh, we will see in the next few months the creation of um, the, the commodification of synthetic cells that produce artemisinin at a cost of 10 times lower per mm -hmm. dose than, the, than farming it, which is a very slow and arduous process and has been subject to boom and bust cycles in yeah. economics for the last decade. And we will see that hitting the shelves with corporate responsibility uh, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation mm -hmm. with a royalty-free patent given to Sanofi Aventis that will be distributed um, at clinics promising not to flood the market, so only providing 50% of the market for artemisinin. That is got to be, uh, if, if the stats are right about malaria killing more people, synthetic biology is about to provide yeah. the biggest wee medicine in history. Donna, yes, please come back. I mean, I think I'm using wee medicine and me medicine as a sort of simple, you know, and controversial way of getting discussion going, which is what these events are supposed to be all about. Um, and I would say that something like transplant medicine is actually we medicine because it requires two people normally, a donor and a, a donee. So it's about altruism, and therefore I would say it's... But at a ratio of one to one. Yeah. Covered an, an enormous range here. We've gone for the, from the, the kind of philosophy of just thinking about these things to some of the practical realities to the social and economic context in which it takes place. And I'm sure you must all have some questions to put to our panel. Um, and we have just um, ooh, only about five minutes left to ask questions before the next session begins. So uh, if you could keep your questions short and sharp, that would be really helpful. Who would like to?